Good evening, everybody. I would like to introduce tonight's guest speaker. His name is Dr. Brian Thomas, and he's from the Institute for Creation Research from Dallas, Texas. Come on up. I'm going to do some things different tonight with you, um, a little bit different than what's on the schedule. The schedule shows that we're going to talk about how creatures adapt second. I just want to flip it. I want to talk about this first, basically because I'm so excited about it that if I did the other talk first, I would just be thinking about this talk the whole time I was doing that talk, <laughs> and it would get jumbled. So that's, that's one change. I hope you're adaptable enough to go with this flow. Uh, talking about how creatures adapt, and really how Charles Darwin um, sort of hijacked what he was seeing in his pigeons. And he said, well, if we extrapolate the changes that are happening in pigeons over the millions of years, or he, he didn't have that many years, but he had eons in his mind, uh, then we can get any creature to morph into any other creature, just give it enough time and enough natural selection, and then, you, you know, that nature can do the rest. Replacement creator, right there in that work of fiction uh, called The Origin of Species. Uh, and so what we'd like to do is look at those pigeons again, look at these animals again, and compare what's actually happening in the animals and plants with what is being said about them in our textbooks and what's being said about them in the Bible. And um, I think the result is going to be a revolution in all of biology. See, we, we, want to, we want to think about biology in a completely new way. And it's easier and easier to think in a creation-friendly way about how creatures... Do creatures adapt? Yeah, okay. We're going to look at, we're going to look at seven specific examples of how creatures adapt. Um, we'll do that. And then I'll try to, I'll try to kind of look blast through these seven in about half an hour, and then I'd like to um, do a bit of Q&A for maybe 10 minutes, and I'll try to make my, my answers short. Uh, we'll have a microphone roaming around for some Q&A. We'll do that, and then we're going to go straight into the last session tonight, and uh, we'll talk about what my area of, of discipline and expertise, which is proteins in fossils. Do that for another half an hour, and then we'll break We'll go for a break after that. So that's the plan, at least in my little imagination. So let's go on with these creatures and how they adapt. It started with projects that we're doing at the Institute with, um, with mosquitoes. Everybody loves mosquitoes, right? My wife is like, I mean, I explain the answer. Why did God make mosquitoes? And I'll say, well, blah, 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 and I'll explain the whole thing. And then a week later, I hate mosquitoes. Why did God make mosquitoes? You're not listening to me. She just wants to complain about mosquitoes. Yes, dear, they're evil. Yes. That's all I should have said all along. Uh, but, yeah, so we, we have acquired these um, Anopheles. It's the genus name for these mosquitoes. And uh, we have them in cages. And we keep them in there uh, when we run these experiments. And our, our dedicated skeeter keeper, his name is Scott. He sticks his arm in the cage, and he offers a blood meal to the mosquitoes. Now, these mosquitoes have been raised for hundreds of generations, over 30 years straight, continuously in laboratories that study mosquitoes. And 
What have they been eating for hundreds of generations and for 30 straight years? Nothing but blood. Nothing but blood. You would think that after all that time and all that blood for dinner, generation after generation, that they would have adapted and that the conditions, if Darwinian thinking is what's really going on, Darwinian thinking has the conditions, the outside factors, like, like temperature, predators, food sources, external factors outside the organism, crafting this organism and shaping the way the organism adapts. The organism is just passive modeling clay and the world is shaping the organism as it travels through time. And that's Darwin's imaginative scenario. Well, what we did is Scott, the genius, he's been looking into this a long time and he, um, he started researching mosquitoes and he found that there's over 100 species, 130 whatever species of mosquitoes, and only three of them take blood. The rest of the mosquitoes take nectar from fruit or flowers. So we suspect that God originally created these piercing mouthparts to do what most mosquitoes do with them, to take nectar from plants. But there's a few that when they get really, really, really thirsty and there's no plants around, no, no way to get nectar, they'll go with whatever they can find. And so it's not like they were intended or originally designed to take blood meals, but they use what tools they have in this fallen world to get what they can get. And that's why they take blood meals. So what Scott did with these mosquitoes that have been raised for all this time with just blood, he manufactured a substitute nectar. He put it in the cage at the same time as he put his arm in the cage. that seals his arm like this with the, the cloth. 100% uh, of the mosquitoes, I mean, there's 100 mosquitoes in this thing. All, all 100 of them went right to the nectar. They preferred the nectar over his blood. Now, you'd think that after all that time, the natural selection of all the, the unnatural selection of all those people, volunteering all their arms for 30 years, generations after generations, would have morphed those mosquitoes to where they would now have a preference for blood. But they did not adapt in that way. Um, they're adapting to taking a blood meal when that's all that's available to them. But they prefer, by design, the, um, the, the nectar, whether it's actual plant nectar or plant nectar soup that Scott made. Isn't that a stunning result? So these are the kinds of experiments that we're doing right now with our donors' money in, at the Institute in our laboratory. We have, um, we have 70 employees. Um, we have a discovery center, which takes like 20 employees, and we have a we have a business office and administration, then we have the science wing, um, and then we have laboratories there too. And I'll tell you some, some more things that we're doing. Just in case you think I'm joshing, here's a, a mosquito in action, doing what it's designed to do. So if these creatures are not passive modeling clay being molded by the outside environment, but if instead they are traveling through time and space detecting their environment, processing the data that they retrieve through their detectors, and then deploying appropriate responses, whether in that very generation or the next or multiple generations down the line, they're responding, then that means adaptations are happening not because of outside factors at all, but because of incredible design. In other words, 
It's inside the creature. Maybe that's why they're adapting. So the question is, as an engineer, how would I build? What kind of features would I look for if I were to engineer a, a self-contained entity that moves through time and space and, um, and adapts? Do we have these today? Have, has, have human engineers manufactured items that do this? Have you ever heard of a self-driving car? What detectors, shout it out, what kind of detector does a self-driving car need? Cameras? Radars? Now, if you have a camera and a radar installed, they've got them all wrapped around the car so it sees the front back sides. It overlaps what it sees in the camera with what it sees in the radar so that it's merging these two inputs to make one message. Um, if all you have is the radar and the cameras, that's not enough, is it? You have to have a process. You have to have a logic center to process those data and to make sense of it. Not only that, but the logic process has to make sense of it, interpret it, and then produce an appropriate output as a response. So, automatic driving, self-driving car drives down the road, it sees brake lights, it sees a car slowing down, radar detects this decreasing distance, and then the logic says, I better do something. What is it that it thinks it needs to do? Apply the brake, absolutely. And, or steer, and it's automatic. So lots and lots of internal design. Now, did it take more or less engineering to design a self-driving car as opposed to a you-drive-it car? More, the answer is more. It took a lot more engineering, because not only do you need this the regular steering wheel and the wheels and the engine and all that engineering, you also need all these detectors, logic processors, and, and responses and motors to actuate the, the car. Drones, self-flying drones, even, even more, because now you have a third dimension you have to worry about. Um, anyway, do we see this in creatures? Do they detect their world? Do they process the data? And do they make appropriate responses? Well, here's seven um, creatures that we think are doing this. One is the peppered moth. Now, why did I choose the peppered moth? Peppered moth. Biston betularia. We learned it in biology class. <clears throat> um, and this is supposed to be an example of evolution in action. You know, this hits the headlines every once in a while. Evolution in action. All it is is creatures adapting. And when they adapt, the evolutionary worldview hijacks the example and labels it evolution, even though... There's no evolution happening. It's just the creature itself detecting its environment and producing appropriate responses as it outputs. Well, the, the, um, the story with peppered moth that I was told and taught um, <clears throat> in uh, Huntsville when I was in high school there is that the, uh, the, the peppered moth was originally uh, white, whitish with black pepper flakes on it. This is pigmentation. And it used to live on the tree trunks in England. And then during the Industrial Revolution, the 1700s, the, the soot from all that smoke and smog, maybe not smog, smoke anyway, stuck to the white bark of the tree branches and turned the white bark black. And now the white moths stand out and they're more easily visible to the birds. And the birds ate the white ones and left the darker ones alive. So you see, this is the story. The birds, as predators, are crafting changes in the creature. Voila! Evolution in action. 
Let's tap the brakes. Tap the brakes on that. What's actually happening with these creatures? Well, here's some light ones and the dark ones. For starters, before the Industrial Revolution, we already had both varieties, dark and light. So if you shift from light to dark or dark to light, has any net evolution occurred? No, you still have Biston betularia with the same variation. Some are darker and some are lighter. Second, there's been some fraudulent um, business going on because these moths don't even live on tree trunks anyways. Uh, turns out that later research found that they live on the underside of leaves and they're, they're nocturnal. Birds don't even um, see them flying around. But... Um, <clears throat> Never mind. Never mind the facts. We don't let facts get in the way of a good evolutionary story. Well, researchers got involved very recently because they're still interested in how these, this, icon, this icon of evolution is adapting to these different um, environments. And here's, here's what they said. Our results imply the conservation of a developmental master switch for melanism. In other words, they're discovering what they're not expecting. They're expecting that the predators are making the switch, are, are the switchers. But no, it's the developmental master switch inside the genes uh, that's doing it. And in particular, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a master switch uh, called transposable elements. And so, and so these are TEs. Uh, for short, and, they, and what it is, is imagine a, a piece of DNA that jumps out of this area and gets um, um, stitched into another area of DNA to m monitor and regulate the genes that are associated. So in other words, all the, almost all the moths that they found that switched from light to dark have the transposable element transposed into the same position in the genome. Wow, this is internal. This is genetics. This is a master switch inside the animal that's happening, not outside, not external, but internal. Well, the second example is the Hawaiian stick spider, Ariamnes, and it's tiny, and it's nocturnal also. I know because I looked for it when I was on Maui. I spent three hours looking inside. I couldn't find a single one of these guys, but it turns out these super little critters have pioneered each of the Hawaiian islands, and every time they pioneer the island, just one of them can do it, and it deploys a whole suite of different color options. And here are some of these colors. On the island of Kauai, there's red ones, um, white ones, black ones. There it is. Oahu, you see it on Maui, has the gold one, and a black one on, on Hawaii. But look, Kauai has a um, different color. Oahu has red. Maui has also red, and, Haw and Hawaii has the dark again, and then the gold ones are on the different islands. Well, it turns out, it turns out that genetically, so they, they did all this, they published this in Current Biology in 2018, they, they, they did the genomes, they sequenced the genomes of all these stick spiders, and what they were expecting, based on evolutionary, you know, expectations, is that, um, you know, one spider would pioneer an island, and then over eons, you know, it would, um, it would diversify and adapt. But instead, they found um, rapid, instant adaptation when, this, uh, when these spiders, uh, just one spider of one color, it, it has um, alleles of the other colors still in it so that 
it somehow detects that there's an island with no other Ariamnes on it. And so it says, next generation, go ahead and deploy all the trade options that we have, like a Swiss Army knife. So for generation after generation, it keeps the bottle opener closed. And then who knows how many generations later, it could be 100. Suddenly it detects, ah, we can do the dark one now because there's lava rock here. We could do the red one over there because there's leaves, leaf litter that's red. And we could do the white one over here where there's lichen, white lichen on the surface of these tree trunks. And we can inhabit all these different zones right here in this little tiny forest. And we just have to... Imp so then it, it switches out the bottle opener, so to speak. It switches out. What I'm saying is it switches the, the, the white color on, the black color on, and they have the same genetics with all the different colors. That's what surprised them, same genetics. So even though these look completely, di like completely different spiders almost because the color and even the behavior is different, uh, suited to its particular environment, um, it was genetic. Well, let's do, look at another example. So they're using, um, it's internal. We're also noticing that it's repeatable. Every time this spider pioneers a new island, it repeated the same deployment of the same suite of trait options as though it was pre-programmed. Not Darwinian. I'm thinking of a new word. It's not going to come out well. <laughs> not Darwinian. Jesusian. <laughs> it's, it looks like it's been designed to adapt. But what else would we expect? I mean, the Lord Jesus said in the beginning, be fruitful, multiply, fill the, fill the earth. And then he foreknew, or I mean, he knew that when these creatures were to, anytime a creature enters a new habitat, it changes the habitat just by entering it. He knew that there would be signs and seasons. Seasons right there. You've got to adapt to the changing seasons. And you've got to adapt to all these changes. He knew that there, was, that there were going to there were going to be opportunities to, to, um, um, to pioneer new environments. But in order to, to, to take, make use of those opportunities, he had to pre-engineer, uh, to front-load these creatures with the ability to detect and adapt. And I think he did that. He did that with the blind cave fish, Astyanax mexicanus. There he is. Now he's a genetically identical to the sighted version. This is the Mexican blind tetra. We have fish tanks after fish tanks, dozens of them in our fish lab. We have a new fish lab. And a new fish lab PhD researcher whose name I can't reveal yet because he's just got, we just got him from the Smithsonian and he doesn't want to reveal his name that he's a creationist because he's still trying to publish a big book with his secular co-authors. And if the, his name gets out, then he'll, um, the, the publisher will, um, he's, not, he's not sure what the publisher would do. So he's trying to protect that book and his co-authors to get that published. Anyways, we're excited about what he's doing. It's fantastic. Now we took, no one's doing this because no one's thinking in these terms. In terms of if this was engineered to adapt, it could do it fast. And it could do it reversibly. So can we turn the eyes off? Can we turn the pigment off and on? Does the creature do that if, it's, if it detects the particular traits of an environment? features of an environment. And we shared our results in June for the first time at a big science meeting in Ohio. And everyone was blown away. It was fantastic. 
because we showed this, this you see this, the, pig, the, the pigmented one, do you see them on top? And then there's the no pigment one. It's very little pigment, the pink one. And, and then the blind one is the pink one. And so if it's it pigmented with eyes, uh, but, but there's more differences than just having no eyes and very little pigment. The, the, the one without pigment, it actually lives in the wild in caves in Mexico. It doesn't need eyes. There's no light in these deep, dark caves. It doesn't need pigment because there's no ultraviolet radiation to damage its DNA that's in its skin. Uh, in fact, there's very little food down there in those caves. So it needs to conserve energy. And one of the biggest energy users in its body it would be its eyeballs. And so instead of developing eyes, apparently, we think, God may have made a master switch that, um, that turns off the eye production, and that's a trait option that it can just deploy uh, over maybe the course of several generations. And we're trying to find out right now how many generations... Remember that old commercial, how many licks does it take to get to the middle of a Tootsie Roll? Tootsie Pop? Whatever the candy is that you just said, that one. How many generations does it take to where uh, this will... Well, so that was, our, that was our... With pigment, it was shocking. We, we took these pink guys and we put um, specialized light that mimics uh, solar radiation, just like the streams uh, receive that, that Texas and Mexico hot sun. And, um, <clears throat> and that, that's why these, these fish have, these, have this dark pigment to absorb the solar radiation to protect the DNA that's in there. Well... We were thinking maybe multiple generations, it'll, it'll start having babies under the light and babies and babies and, and several years from now, we'll eventually start getting these pigmented guys to develop more pigment. I mean, it's been countless generations that they've been in these caves and even when they've been in researchers' fish labs, they still produce the same suite of traits. Larger blood, red blood cells, bigger gills to get more oxygen in case it's a low oxygen environment. Um, different feeding patterns because they can't see. They have to mow. They mow along the, the floor looking for f- food. And they have, a, um, they have um, pressure sensors along what's called the lateral line of the fish. It goes along here. And um, <clears throat> they actually, you can, you can buy these on Amazon for five bucks a piece. And I encourage you to do it because it's fun to watch the blind cave fish swim in your fish tank. But they'll make babies and the babies will look the same as the parents. And, um, but they don't need eyes, and they avoid everything in the tank. How are they seeing without eyes? Well, they build pressure sensor maps. So they use their pressure sensors and chemical sensors, integrating those into a map so they can detect everything in their environment. It's fun to watch them um, live and swim. And they do this mating swim dance where they'll twirl in a little salsa I knew I knew I was risking it risking it shouldn't have risked it sorry pastor Thad the rug won't rust will it it'll adapt <laughs> All that to say this, we put these blind cave fish with the pink bodies in under this super, um, super intense light. 
within 30 days, they were darkly pigmented, just like the ones that have been under sunlight for many generations. Researchers publishing in the journal Science is one example of many of the adaptations that these guys undergo. Here's little fishies developing in their little eggs. Um, uh, It turns out that they have conductivity, that is electrical conductivity, detectors in the eggs. So as they're developing in the cave or in the not cave, it turns out that there's a... uh, uh, the cave water has lower conductivity because there's fewer dissolved ions. And so uh, it can detect what's going on with the electricity in the water. And then that inhibited HSP-90, which is a heat shot protein 90, which um, reduced their eye uh, by eyeball size and eye socket size within one generation. Uh, wow. So they published that in 2013. So we're seeing more and more evidence that these things are actually designed to adapt from the beginning. What about the three-spine stickleback? This is an incredible fish, and it's got two different versions. Um, <clears throat> Gasterosteus. When he looked at fish from other lakes, he found something remarkable. If you look at a fish that's lost its pelvis in Scotland, or Iceland, Alaska, or British Columbia, the same switch has been thrown away over and over and over again whenever the fish have evolved the loss of a pelvis. Okay. Did you, hear, did you hear it's a mixture of fact with fiction? The same switch has been thrown away when it evolved the loss of a pelvis. And it's got this pelvic bone. It's got these, um, these spines, the three spines. And there's some spines that stick out down here, uh, pelvic spines and then back, uh, dorsal spines. When it lives in the ocean, it even has these armor plates on the side underneath its skin, those bony plates. When it lives in the ocean. But when it pioneers new fresh water, uh, whether it's in all those places he mentioned, um, Alaska or Scotland, every time it pioneers up into fresh water, a couple generations later, we don't know how many generations it takes to get this creature to change, but it looks like it's happening fast uh, because um, the spines reduce and then the armor plates go away and then it goes to two little spines and um, because it doesn't have the same predators in the freshwater that it did in the saltwater oceans. But what these guys are saying is it's throwing away the same switch. In other words, it's not a random event genetically. Now, my textbooks told me that it's random mutations with that, that nature selects, and that's how you get adaptation. Problem solved. Questions answered, done, and it just becomes a dogma. But how can that explain the non-random, not mutation, we're losing the same genetic switch over and over? These guys say this in a different study here, way back in 2021, reuse of the EDA gene provided the initial evidence that the repeated evolution, I would just say adaptation, that's what it is. Repeated adaptation of freshwater phenotypic traits was the result of, oh, get this, standing genetic variation that exists. It's already standing there in the fish. It didn't emerge from nowhere. It didn't didn't evolve from um, mutations. It was already in the fish. Where did it come from? Well, this fits the creation model, which would say that Jesus put it there in the beginning to give these creatures the ability to deploy lots of spines or a few spines the stickleback fish. Here's another study on the stickleback. Now, this is an x-ray on the top. You see the, um, 
marine version. On the bottom, you see the, the freshwater version <clears throat> there. And, and then they showed, even this one, re repeated exposure to cues of a predator um, uh, results in significant differential expression of genes involved in immune response, synaptic processes, brain metabolic processes, and visual perception. So here's what's going on. Fish are swimming around the freshwater fish version. And it's got the tiny little spikes um, on its dorsal spikes. It, it doesn't have any um, ventral... Um, it doesn't have any spikes near its belly, that, what, it, what they're sometimes calling a hip. It's not a hip, okay? Now, fish is swimming in the water, and it detects something. What are cues of a predator? Alarm pheromones. What are those? Well, when a predator eats its cousin, then it's going to poop out the bits of its cousin. Okay? Just ate, my cousin just got eaten, and I'm detecting pooped out cousin bits in the water. As, now, this fish has, according to this research, detectors. How could it be um, an alarm pheromone if there's no detector to detect it? It's only an alarm pheromone. It only causes an alarm within the fish's system because there's a detector specifically designed in advance to detect that and to make it mean there's an alarming thing going on. Our cousins are getting eaten. We better make a change. So what's it do? Immediately, immediately, not generations later, not natural selection, not mutations, immediately there's a gene expression differential difference. And so it's expressing genes that, it, that, that uh, make it look out, increases its, um, um, its reaction time, decreases its reaction time, just so it can avoid those predators. Okay, which one are we on now? So, so in review, uh, we have these processes are internal, they're not from the outside necessarily, okay? They're repeatable, so that, that, that goes against what I was taught in terms of evolution being kind of a one-way thing. You go from hu hydrogen to humans, and just that, that's the way it went. You can't go back. But these creatures are going from dark to light to dark to light, and <clears throat> spines to fewer spines to bigger spines. To they, can, they can reverse it. Um, these spiders redeploy the same thing. Uh, they're using detectors, like the, um, the, like the um, electricity um, conductivity detectors. And then they're deploying specific responses that make sense, like the stickleback. They're deploying a response. I better start looking out so I won't get eaten like my cousin did. And so uh, what about the ground finch, Darwin's finches, which I guess recently they were called tanagers, Everyone's calling him a tanager now. Well, the, this is another icon of evolution, the ground finch, Geospizza. And um, so um, on the Galapagos Islands, uh, they've got these, uh, these, little fit, these little finches. Um, I'll just keep calling them finches because I'm used to it. And some of their beaks get a little longer, some of their beaks get shorter. And so we've been taught, I've been told uh, in my textbooks and in the technical literature that I've read, they're just assuming that it's the drought conditions that produces the hard seeds, that's all that's available to eat, and that external condition, that's what forces some to die who can't get that food source. And the ones who survive are the ones who can have thick enough beaks to get through 
the seed, the tough seeds, and those are the ones that survive. So it's survival of the fittest, and that's how creatures adapt, except the geneticists got involved again. And so here's some examples of the size and shape differences in some of these be- beaks. By the way, they all, they all interbreed. They all can interbreed, and some of them have recently interbred. Um, and then published in 2014 in this journal, Nature Communications, it's free online, these, these authors were studying how um, finches um, develop in the egg their beaks. And they came up with this formula, and they said this formula describes the shape of a half of a cone, a semi-cone, like an ice cream cone, but in half. And it turns out the top beak is one cone, the bottom beak is another cone, so together they're a beak. Now, I don't know what these variables mean, but they're telling me that it's describing what's happening in the cells. Now, the, the colored pictures have um, fluorescent dye marking the cells that are building beak, beak material inside the bird. And then the graphs on the right have a predicted line. If these cells are using the formula that describes a semicone, then it should, they should be a, a, along this line. And then they found, of course, that it's exactly along these lines. So the prediction based on the, the formula exactly matches what these cells are doing. In other words, genetically, these finches already have in them the formula for a beak shape. Now, all you have to do is plug in a different variable, a different number for some of these variables to make the beak a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. And what they've determined is this is happening genetically. And so one generation, you might have a, a, a clutch of eggs, and some of these little baby birds have a little bit longer beak, some have a little bit shorter beak. Big whoop. I mean, and they might go back. And they're interbreeding so they can redeploy these different trait options that are already standing, like standing variation, already in the creatures. Um, similar to what Gregor Mendel found with his famous pea plant experiments. Pink pea flower, or white pea flower, purple pea flower, for example. And it can go from white to purple or purple to white, different generations. But those two options were already in there, f- probably from the beginning. Second to last, deer mouse, the deer mouse, um, paramiscus. It's the most common uh, 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 single mammal species in North America, the deer mouse. Well, here's the distribution of this. Um, it's, it, it pioneered somehow in the center of the, of the U.S., from the, bread, the big bad bread basket uh, of the U.S. And so from there, it migrated eastward and westward into the forests there. And these um, researchers, publishing in 2016, the journal Evolution, are tracking the adaptations of this mouse. How does it adapt? Well, it turns out that when it pioneered the western forests, it adapted by deploying a longer tail. So there's two ways you can make a mouse's tail longer, and I don't mean like pulling it. I mean, <laughs> there's two ways that developmentally in the womb you can make this, the mother can, the, the tail can be longer. Um, what's one of them? What's the other one? Give me a guess, give me an option. Okay, it has to do with the vertebrae that make the tail. Say again? Skeleton. Yeah, the vertebrae of the skeleton. To make that tail longer overall, you can either lengthen the 
each vertebra. You can lengthen each vertebra. What else can you do? Add more vertebrae. Well, both of those has happened. So both longer vertebrae and more vertebrae have been deployed in the Western varieties. Same in the Eastern, independently. Now, we don't know what advantage it offers these deer mouse who live in the forest yet, but we do see a consistency, and we see um, a developmental um, uh, program is in place. Hey, we're in the forest now. We need to make a longer tail. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, I have this program in place already pre-designed, and one option is to make longer vertebrae and make more vertebrae, and it does it, and it does it the same way in the West as it does in the East. That's what they determined. I don't think it's evolution. I mean, depending on how you want to define that, I just think it's variation within the created kind. All created kinds have variations. And it turns out that those variations occur in ornamental, not fundamental traits. Coat color, that can change. It's ornamental. Body size, ornamental, not fundamental. Um, but if you mess with the fundamental traits, the traits upon which that species, that, that kind, which we liken to a, um, the family level, level of classification, like the bovid family is the cow family. If you, um, if you were to uh, replace its um, ruminant stomach, these are ruminants, you know, they chew a cud and they have these different chambers in their stomach, replace it with a stomach like yours, and it has the same habits of eating grass, it's going to be sick and die. So you, it, it's all integrated. So once you, change, once, you, once you try to swap out a fundamental feature, uh, then you end up breaking the creature. And so that's why we see these traits that, are, that deploy different options. They're with ornamental or adaptable and not fundamental traits. Just some examples really quick in Bovidae. You've got longhorns, you know, buffalo, and they, um, regular cows interbreed with buffalo. They make beefalo. Um, there's also the bantang and uh, the yak, and some others might, uh, might interbreed uh, based on... Um, attempts to get their um, eggs to fertilize and things like that. So, but anyway, the, the point being, long hair, short hair, curly hair, straight hair, uh, light, dark, patchy, brown, all these are trait options that were baked in in the beginning. And so I don't think nature deserves the credit, guys. The more we look into these creatures, the more we see that they are internal processes, not outside, like Darwin, you know, forced even me to think in terms of it being out, it's internal, not external. It's repeatable, so it can reverse right back, uh, as though it's uh, you know created to adapt. And then they're using detectors, and they're responding in specific ways. In a lot of cases, not all cases, um, but it's it's um, uh, we see creature after creature adapting through internally designed, often genetic or epigenetic. We'll talk about that maybe in the Q and A. Um, uh, in, internal factors, fa factors internal to the organism that are doing this. Wow. So what does that do for our worship level of the Lord Jesus Christ if we believe that he made these things? I mean, I, it, we could say, wow, Henry Ford, you did a great job. You made a car. And then now we can say, but, but this Tesla group, they made a car that can drive itself. So our our esteem goes even higher. 
And so in, this, in like manner, we can give the Lord Jesus credit for crafting creatures, which is great. But he made them adaptable, which is even greater, because he's even greater. And we can elevate him. For by, all, for by him, all things were created. Well, no wonder these creatures are so ingeniously designed. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, um, all things were created through him and for him. Um, he gets the credit and uh, he deserves it, guys. He absolutely deserves it. Well, let's uh, transition to um, let's transition to a, a Q and A. How about that? Q and A. Who's got a question? So what we'll do is um, uh, we'll have the hands up, and then I'll just listen for the I'll just listen for the question, and we'll go right into the next presentation. Here goes the question. Are these transposable elements that display different phenotypical traits, are they ever known to be lost over generations? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question for a geneticist. I'm more of a fossil guy. Um, I would suspect that some of the TEs can come and go, yeah. All right, real quickly, a second question. Do you think that the differences in the phenotypical traits in humans has changed since creation, Adam and Eve? Uh, I, think, I, I, I think, think they have, but... I think most of the, the phenotypic differences that we see within humankind today, I think most of those differences... Well, think of it like this. Uh, let's say that, that God created Adam and Eve with several hundred alleles, okay? Every time we have meiosis to make a sperm or an egg, you chop half of those away, okay? Then you recombine what the, whichever alleles the egg got which, with whatever alleles the sperm got, and then you get this new tr suite of trait options. It turns out that all you need is a few hundred of these to have an infinite, almost a practically infinite um, reserve or variety of, of uh, trait options moving forward through, through succeeding generations. No mutations are required. Um, and uh, so I, I think that, <clears throat> uh, I think that um, uh, Gregor Mendel discovered this, and he actually called it in his paper um, uh, the, the law, uh, what did he call it? The law of exponential trait variability, something like that. And that was his main law that he discovered that no biology textbook I ever read talks about. But it's, it's true. It's what actually is happening. So, uh, so there's just an, almost an infinite variety of, of trait options, I mean, among humankind. But it was, it's all because of the number of, uh, of alleles that God crafted into Adam and Eve's genomes originally. Or maybe just Adam's, and when he took Eve's from his side, you know, maybe maybe there's uh, maybe he maybe she had his alleles, but even even there, there's enough alleles having been created originally. And there's actually clues in today's uh, genome studies that show that there's uh, common trait variations and you, and rare trait variations. The common ones are the ones I think that he gave Adam and Eve, and the rare ones are the ones that that came from mutations that have developed since Adam and Eve. And so the, so that's a uh, pretty much a confirmation of creation. 
Yeah, great questions. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I got a couple of questions. One is, uh, does diet influence adaptation? Oh, sure. Why are flamingos pink? They eat shrimp, which is delicious. <laughs> if they didn't eat the shrimp, then they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have that same color in their feathers. Yeah. Uh, so for certain, for certain animals and plants, the, the materials that they take in can affect certain traits, for sure. But not, not necessarily all traits at all time for all creatures. Okay. And second thing, uh, are transposable elements used to be considered junk DNA? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or at least they were considered, uh, you know, when jumping genes were first discovered uh, in corn plants in the, I think, the 60s or 70s, um, <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was considered, uh, it was interpreted within the framework and the rubric of evolutionary change, which has to happen by random mutations in natural selection. And those are the only mechanisms allowed. Um, and so in that, in that rubric, it was like, well, what's happening with these jumping genes? Oh, there must be mistakes happening, and it must be this gene is being uh, chopped out and plugged in over there, um, ruining the genome, ruining... The, but the whole while, it's this... The whole time, it's, it, it could just as well have been considered and a, yet another... Um, tr uh, vi trait variation inducing system in the cells yeah. in, 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 a, in a zygote, in a developing egg cell. So, so in other words, yeah, you have all these different alleles that you can mix and match every generation, but you also can have jumping genes, and we do have jumping genes, and, they, and so, it's, uh, so the cell is going, you know, I think we need to, let's try this option too. Take this segment of DNA and plug it in over here, and that's going to affect how... Um, that's going to affect uh, how, how, how this gene over here is going to be, trans how often it gets transcribed, what tissues it gets transcribed in, what time of development, early or late, in those tissues. All these are questions that, that, that our bodies seem to already have automatic answers to. That's how, that's how the level of design is just mind-boggling. Yes? Um, um, a, a creature that... Uh, that amazes me is the cuttlefish and that's because immediately it can change its color its shape it can be uh, neon it can blink it can do all kinds of things and is that what you're talking about when you talk about uh, instant uh, not even you know a generational thing but uh, instant adaptation that's an example it sure is yeah or we can even think of something closer to home, uh, Anolis carolinensis, the little, you know, anole lizards. And we used to, we used to catch them here, uh, here in Alabama when I was in high school. And uh, you throw it on a tree trunk and it turns brown. You throw it on a, on a well, we would, we would throw it on places where we probably shouldn't throw it. Um, <laughs> but you, you put it on a white tabletop and suddenly it turns bright green. So, th so these are, uh, th that's an example of an instant adaptation. But... With that, with that creature, um, it's brown and green, brown to green or green to brown. It's reversible, uh, it's adaptable in that specific way. And uh, there's lots of different variations of anal lizards, but 
all anal lizards have the same fundamental features of being an anal lizard. That long, skinny snout, for example, um, etc. So, um, that, but the more stunning examples, I mean, maybe the cuttlefish is that's absolutely stunning, and I encourage everyone to go YouTube, look at it, you know, or find a PBS program or something where you can just watch the cuttlefish flash color. It's like a movie that they play on their skin. It's just stunning uh, there, and, um, and <clears throat> they use that to communicate and to play even. I mean, they use it to just goof off, uh, which I love that. What does that tell about the creator? <laughs> He thinks fun is fun. Um, but, um, but, th- but there's other examples, like um, researchers have um, exposed mice to, um, what was it, uh, cherry blossom smell and given them shocks. These horrible, vicious researchers shock the mouse. Well, what happened is the next generation, when they exposed the babies to the smell, they had this self-protective, um, uh, it's like they remembered their, what their parents are. So the parents are transferring information that the parent's body learns in one generation, and it's actually getting transferred to the next generation in addition to the, the very same generation like the lizards and, and the sea creatures like that. Okay, what else? Okay, two more. So you kind of explained this a little bit, but um, so at the Ark Encounter, um, they have like the idea of like a bunch of like there's two of each kind on the ark, and then like from each of those kinds came all the different species. Species, but like how exactly like does that work without like saying like oh the kinds on the ark then evolved into what we have now versus like them adapting and us not having the things that we that were like initially there, if that makes sense. Uh, okay, I just need a little more specification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like... I'm almost there. No, 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 you're good. I was there, like, seven years ago, so my brain is, like, only remembering pieces okay. of what I read. But it was basically, like, here's, like, this one, like, feline type of animal. And then from this one feline that was here, we now have lions and tigers, but also house cats. And, like, how does that work as far as, like... Is, is that what happened, or, like, how did that happen? Because, like, the, like, little, like, random okay, like, yeah. figures that they had weren't, like, an actual animal that we actually have now. Right. Uh, so I think that is what happened. Uh, and, and, and the reason I think that is specifically about family felidae is because um, the um, house cats can interbreed with the African wildcat still today, from which house cats, I believe, descended. And then the African wildcat can, bre- can breed with like an ocelot, which can breed with a puma, which can breed with a tiger, which can breed... So it, they interbreed in this continuum. Now, you can't get a house cat to interbreed with a lion because there's a size difference and other differences. But, um, but they interbreed in a continuum. And so that gives us enough clues because in today's retained ability to interbreed in that way. It gives us enough clues to conclude with... Uh, to conclude uh, um, that they belong to the same kind. And um, house cats and lions, by the way, lions and tigers, ligers are a real thing. They actually exist. Um, They can interbreed. But um, if you look at the anatomy, a lion is just, it's anatomically, it's exactly the same as a house cat. It's just really, really big. Uh, And so size differences, not fundamental, but ornamental. Um, How did that happen? 
And um, it has to do with two factors. One is you have to generate a new combination of alleles, but that happens automatically when meiosis happens to develop sperm or egg. It's going to make a new... Um, but then you have to isolate that next generation from the parents. So you have to have some, something to isolate that next generation. And um, I don't call it selection. I just call it isolation. And so there's several, there's lots actually of mechanisms that isolate the next generation. But what you need to have happen is you need to have these two cats make a litter. And then from, from that litter, you need to have at least a male and female to pioneer a new place where their further generations are not going to back, are not going to interbreed with the generations that came from their siblings. Because if they do, they're going to recombine the same alleles that the parents had. So you need to take those alleles, that particular set of, of, of alleles that are turned off and on, and you need to have those be isolated. And when that happens, even today when that happens, um, uh, uh, that new, uh, what's called a founder population, will adapt and it'll, it'll start to look different within one generation. Um, the most famous example among biologists, maybe one of them, is uh, the African cichlids. So this is, um, these, these, these fish, I mean, they're incredible, but each, each time that the cichlid fish have pioneered a new lake in Africa, um, they bring with them a huge um, bag, so to speak, of alleles. In other words, standing variation is already in there. And so much so that they can deploy all these different trait variations and still be um, cichlids. Now, some of these cichlids look really different. There's tall ones and long ones. There's some with giant lips that eat insects. And there's others with tiny lips that, 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 that have like a beak-shaped mouth that eat um, snails. But they descended from the same uh, family that pioneered that lake. How did they do that? Um, alleles got deployed, but then it turns out that God even invented, if you will, some alleles to make, um, to, to basically force that next generation to not be able to, to, to interbreed or to back cross. Okay, so that's something to look up. Okay, I said I would do short answers, but man, am I failing. Uh, so, by the way, I've got a brand new article that answers that question. It's in the very next issue of Acts and Facts, coming out in one month. So, if you haven't subscribed, I encourage you to subscribe to Acts and Facts, and we'll, we'll, we'll answer that question with four pages. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Turquoise shirt. I think you can give me a short answer. When you were talking about the fossils after the flood. You mentioned a lot of things, but you didn't mention any people fossils. Were there any people fossils? Well, there are no people, there are no human fossils that are in the same layers as dinosaurs or marine fossils because people don't live on the bottom of the ocean. And I don't think that, um, so what do we find with the dinosaur fossils? We find swamp and wetlands type creatures like soft-shell turtles. Um, and uh, <clears throat> this is our last question, by the way. And we're going to roll right into this. So, um, 
So where, I think the place we need to look for human fossils would be a place where we find other creatures that live kind of in the places where humans live, which is hard ground. So where are the camels? Where are the cats and camels, the dogs and deers? And it turns out that there's very few places where we have those fossils, and the places where we do have them, uh, we, um, there's no uh, creation-oriented researcher that I know of who has access to those fossil places. Okay? So that's where I would look. And uh, so if any of you are budding paleontologists and you want to do some creation research, that's a great project to, to get your PhD in paleontology Cenozoic and to get access to these, um, these rare, somewhat rare uh, Cenozoic fossil layers and see if there's any human remains in there. Uh, okay, ready for fresh fossils from four continents? that make the world look really recently deposited and give us confidence that this verse is exactly correct. Uh, the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, Second Peter 3.6. When I saw this image published in the journal Science in 2005, I was just hooked, and I'm still hooked. I'm still excited, even though it's long after 2005. Why? Because these red-colored tissues were liberated from, the, from a Tyrannosaurus rex thigh bone, femur. And it's red because they found hemoglobin, decayed old hemoglobin, but it's still, it's still intact enough to, to be colored red. And then the arrows there are pointing to um, connective tissues made of collagen protein. Um, and I, I just had to know what's going on here. How long can collagen last and hemoglobin and things like that and how many uh, fossils have this stuff in them so we're going to look at some examples from four continents well here's a model of collagen it's a it's a tough ropey protein it's what makes up your skin it's in your bones it's what makes leather tough enough to use for shoes so that's what we do but even leather does leather last forever this is a question the part where you respond no. What happens to old leather? Turns dark, it develops cracks, it falls apart. So this is chemistry happening in your garage, uh, chemistry happening in your body. As, we, um, as our collagen replacement cells get slower and slower, our skin gets more and more rankly, as they say. So this is collagen, and every little bubble is a, shows the position of an atom, and so the, it's manufactured in a slender strand, but these three strands automatically snap together like um, magnets. And so it's a cord of three strands, which is therefore not easily broken. But it is broken eventually because chemistry happens. So at the ends, especially, we have oxygen reacting and water that reacts, and it, and it pulls apart the amino acids. It takes the, it's called deamidation reactions, oxid, um, uh, oxidation reactions, and that turns this collagen protein into little tiny gases. It should be gone, gone, gone. Well, how, how long does it take to do this? So if we start the collagen egg timer, how many ticks would it take for it goes ding, and then there's no more collagen left? Um, secular researchers have done the studies and published the results in archaeology journals, which took me like three years to find them finally found them. And we even have the activation energy, or energy of activation, if you're a biochemist, at 173 kilojoules per mole. So we have this very precisely characterized. It's a first-order reaction. It depends on temperature. The hotter it is, the shorter it lives. That's why we have refrigerators, 
right, to keep, to keep meat from uh, falling apart. Um, that's one of the reasons. The main reason is to keep the germs from eating it up and rotting it. So, uh, so what's keeping the germs from rotting it under the ground? Not much, except that it's dry. If it's dry enough, then the germs won't get around. So we measure the, um, we measure the decay rate at three different temperatures, and we use the Arrhenius equation, which we learned in uh, freshman chemistry. Uh, there, so I use that equation when I've replicated this research. We got our results published in um, January of 23 in the journal um, uh, Applied Spectroscopy, where we used a spectroscopic technique to show the same things we've been looking at with other techniques like this one, uh, where they just weighed the mass of the protein left over after it had been exposed to high temperature for uh, some t some months, some time. Well, this is 12 days. So at high temperature after, um, does my mouth show up? What's this thing? Does this do something? I am a professional. Look at this. So here we see a decay curve. So this curve is the, is the result of collagen decaying. This was published in Archaeological and Anthropological Sciences in 2009. So at high temperature, after, after 10 days, your collagen is gone. Uh, that's just one example of the kind of decay that I'm talking about. So, um, so here's Dr., the late, great Dr. Kevin Anderson and I working at his lab in uh, Phoenix, and we have three water baths set up. It's like three ovens, and so we, we put little bone powder and fragments in these vials, and we, we test the bone to see how long the collagen maintains its integrity in the bone. And here's our results published in the journal there. And uh, anyway, graphs and pictures. Yay, graphs and pictures. It's our favorite. Anyway, uh, results in this kind, of re um, this kind of conclusion. It'll take between 0 0.2 and 0 0.7 million years, in theory, at 10 degrees Celsius, for collagen to become no longer detectable. Okay? That was published in Antiqua in 2011. We verified it with a different technique. Now, 200,000 to 700,000 years is a lot of years, but it's not a million. Are you with me? So we repeated lab bench science, repeatable, measurable, all that, has determined and the ideal conditions that these collagen fibers cannot last any longer than about a half a million years, okay, under ideal conditions. Um, and so, do we find collagen in the fossils? If we do, then those fossils should be younger than a million, younger than half a million, really. Uh, so we have two models, right? So you get to pick which model you think best explains the data. One model is that these are actually as old as we're all taught, tens of millions of years old. The other model is these were deposited in a Noah's flood only thousands of years ago. If it's deposited in the flood, then we might expect to see some of these original proteins still intact based on the known and measured decay rates. Uh, and we do. So here's, some, here's a Psittacosaurus, if you want to say that again. We said it last night. Psittacosaurus. And it's um, deposited there in, in the Gobi Desert in China. And so researchers publishing there in 2008 used cross-polarized light microscopy to reveal collagen in the skin. It's like a natural mummy. So this creature is not turned into stone. It's just buried in mud. They uncovered it, and it was like the mud dried it down. So the skin is stuck right down onto the bones, just like uh, something like an Egyptian mummy there. What about this Lufengosaurus? Say that. 
Lu Feng, from a place called Lu Feng, published in Nature, and uh, they looked at a, so they took this um, egg of a Lu Fengosaurus. It's shaped like that. It's a sauropod, and um, uh, they opened up the egg, and they found this cute little baby sauropod. It's such a sweetheart. And they found the the uh, the femur because it's the largest single bone inside the egg, and they they carefully um, cut open the femur and thin sectioned it, and they and they took these images and they showed that it has protein still in the femur. Well, in, um, um, in fresh bone, the number one protein, like 90% of the protein that's in bone, is collagen protein. So they're finding collagen. Uh, in fact, this is what they said. It can be concluded that complex pro- proteins were preserved in our specimen with its age assignment of over 100 million supposed years. I think, I think the years aren't making much sense based on um, the, the protein that's in them. And it's not just dinosaurs, guys. What about this turtle fossil? Well, this is what they found inside the turtle fossil. Bone cells, osteocytes. Wow. Well, here's, a, here's another fun, fun one to say. Caudipteryx. Caudipteryx. Another Chinese fossil. And a lot of people claim it's a feathered dinosaur. Um, I don't think it is. It looks like a flightless bird had feathers on a bird. It's a feathered bird. That's what I think it was found there in, in China. And here's what they found way back in 2021, way back, so long ago. Uh, and they looked at these special cells called chondrocytes. And inside the chondrocytes they found, in the fossil now, they found chromosomes that, that responded to DNA staining. And they published this in Communication Biology. It's free online. What about continent number two? Let's go to Europe and look at a mosasaur. Wow, I mean, they found all kinds of stuff in this mosasaur. This was another free one that you can look up, free online, in PLOS One. They found osteocytes again, using different techniques, but the one that is, got to my attention is this one here, H, okay? H, uh, the middle one. Because this material is connective tissue in bone that's been liberated from the bone by just dissolving the mineral part away and you still have this, it's called ECM extracellular matrix. Well, what does that mean? It's made of collagen. Guys, this is, I mean, this is a high enough quality for us to be able to put in hot dogs and eat it. I mean, at least for, for us in Dallas. I mean, you highfalutin people here and trustful may not eat that kind of hot dog, but we're going to go for it. Primary organic molecules is what they said they found, including collagen. Wow. They're finding it. What about this Tarbosaurus? This was, they were publishing on this Tarbosaurus in 19, um, this one's 1998, but they published in 1967 the first images of collagen fibers from any dinosaur or any fossil for that matter was from this particular Tarbosaurus. It's basically a small T-Rex type creature. They're excavated in Poland. Wow, look what they found. Um, they found, okay, look at this. So this, this is an electron micrograph, so you spray a a gold on it, and then you shoot electrons on it, and then uh, the the electrons, I guess, reflect off, and you get this image. So this business is bone, but then this is a tube sticking out of the bone. This tube that penetrates the bone is a blood vessel. And what they find inside this blood vessel, they zoomed in, they found these little round objects. They're calling them erythrocytes. Uh, present in dinosaur hemoglobin in this Tarbosaurus batar from Poland. So it's in Europe. By the way, um, we have this 
I showed you this last night, but it's a, a beautiful um, piece of art in Barcelona with a, a nothosaurus. Well, they found a fossil nothosaurus with blood vessels in it. Here's a network of blood vessels revealed or liberated from the bone. So yes, Europe and um, uh, Asia both have fossils in them with fresh-looking, recently, it looks like it's recently deposited. They explained it away uh, in their paper uh, with a micro-coating of mineral, a micro-coating of mineral. But of course, the same um, water that would be required to bring that mineral on and to slather the blood vessels with a coating of that mineral, that same water would, would react with the, the tissue itself and would help to decay it and degrade it, especially over the uh, 100 plus million supposed years that this tarbosaur, this nothosaurus has been, let's see, Triassic, you're talking 200 million, whatever. I think it's all buried in the flood. The whole rock stack from Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Pennsylvanian, Permian, Triassic, Triassic, Cretaceous, uh, all, all these. Boom. One year. Flood after tsunami after tsunami. And, uh, and we have lots of research to back that up, including this amazing material. Uh, what about 2017 in scientific reports? Another turtle, uh, adaptive coloration. And they're finding exceptionally preserved uh, sea turtle fossil with pigment still in it. And um, they found um, hemoglobin. Wow. What am I looking at? Here's the fossil turtle. Look at this little, these little or, uh, green dots right here that, that, that are found along this blood vessel. Um, why is it glowing green? Well, it only glows green uh, using this technique, um, immunohistochemistry. It only glows green if, it, if the antibody attaches to the antigen. And in this case, the antigen is hemoglobin. So it's got hemoglobin still in the blood vessel in this turtle. Uh, that's a, the best, most straightforward way to explain why we have green dots. You never thought you'd see green dots tonight, did you? You're like, wow, green dots. Well, at least, at least think to yourself, another evidence of hemoglobin, but this time it's in Europe. Here's the most stunning one, guys, Sableides. I mean, these are tube worms in today's oceans. And uh, the, it's this kind of creature that secretes a tube, makes its own house, it's made of uh, protein and uh, chitin. So chitin is similar to the material that makes up a, an insect's exoskeleton or a crab shell or a shrimp shell, something like that. So it's a mixture of those two biological materials. And so it emerges from its little tube, and then it, 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 as, the, as the, the, the water wafts across its fan, it'll collect... Uh, It'll do gas exchange, and it'll collect debris. And then when it sees a shadow overhead, it pops down into its little um, worm tube. So it turns out that these tubes are, were preserved in sediments that were buried uh, underneath um, the sea, deeply underneath the sea. Um, and so they, 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 they've got a core sample from um, off the shore of Russia, and uh, they, they started looking at what's in this, these layers that are beneath the sea. And uh, they found... Tube worms shell, not the worm itself, but the casing is still intact. But here's the shocking thing. It's named Sableides cambriensis for a very specific reason. It's because it was found in a rock layer that's designated Cambrian. 
And that has this evolutionary age assignment of 520 million supposed years. You're telling me for half a billion years, these proteins have been sitting down there and they haven't decayed? Like chemistry hasn't happened at all? I mean, it's like asking a cup of coffee to stay hot for 100 years. It, it's just, a, it defies the laws of chemistry. Um, and so they, they've published these images that show, and, and these spectra that show um, fibers still in there. And that's what they concluded there. Well, let's go to the continent number the third and South America. Does South America have fossils that have original biomaterials in them? Obviously so, or I wouldn't be t showing a slide of it. <laughs> Titanosaur eggshell. They found ovalbumin on the titanosaur eggshell. That, now that's an egg-specific protein still in there. Guys, I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg. We found 122 separately published in the technical mainstream literature descriptions of biomaterials in fossils. These things look freshly deposited. They look young, and they look young in all the different continents. Here's modern bird collagen, extinct bird. So this was published in 2005. More green dots showing that we have collagen in these bird fossils. Wow. And then, of course, North America. We have the best. Woohoo! Like this lizard. I think I showed some of you this lizard in the last few days. It's half a lizard anyways. Well, they found um, um, keratin protein. That's what makes up fingernails and hair. And skin scales in lizard scales. Keratin proteins still in there. Wow some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left. But there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece. <gasps> no. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur yeah. bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this and you think, what? You see, I didn't you want say, to tell anybody. <laughs> you'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, okay, do it again. I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there. Things that look suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she dissolved the bone away and there were blood vessels. And, you know, I was like, shocked. How could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones. Look at that. Blood vessels and even what seemed to be intact cells pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science that organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. Mary, Jack, and their team cool. published their... But the reason that we're confident that organic materials can't survive a million years, let alone 68 million, is not because it's a rule of science that we've arbitrarily selected out of thin air. It's because that's what the lab tests show. So something's got to give. And I think the millions of years, if you give those up, you solve all the problems within this discipline. Uh, here's a um, duckbill dinosaur, and they found this, published this in 2009, um, from a collagen protein sequence, branching blood vessels in a, in a Brachylophosaurus there. And there's more. Uh, what, about, what about more of that extracellular matrix there in uh, the middle? 
and branching blood vessels in Triceratops, published in 2007. Uh, this is even making its way into movies. So Jurassic World uh, came out in 2015, I believe. And you got the young, you know, dino nerd brother, um, and he's, <clears throat> and he's uh, talking about how you can get uh, this special preservation mechanism and talking about how iron, if you have, you know, iron nearby, it will actually act like formaldehyde and preserve these tissues forever. Um, problem with that, several problems with that hypothesis. Number one, it hasn't been tested. It's just been thrown out there. Um, we'd like to do the test, and we're gearing up to do the test. Um, but if you have that iron, it accelerates an oxidation reaction. But for every oxidation reaction that might, um, what we call cross-link two adjacent proteins, binding them together to make a stronger, longer, bigger, longer-lasting material, you're going to have a thousand, let's say, uh, oxidation reactions that actually break apart those proteins. Uh, so, um, and we should expect to see, therefore, in the protein sequence, an oxidized version of the amino acids. For example, methionine is the not oxidized version. It's what, it's what it, it makes up part of the amino acid sequence of collagen protein. And, but if it was oxidized even a little bit, it should have, that sulfur is pretty reactive and it should have reacted with oxygen and it should have made methionine sulfoxide. But what did they sequence when we sequence our dinosaur proteins? If we find actual methionine, not um, oxidized methionine. So on the one hand, they want their cake of, hey, iron makes this last indefinitely. And then they want to eat it too by saying, but iron didn't do anything for these tissues that we're sequencing. Wow. So there's something fishy going on there. Uh, hemoglobin in this mosasaur from Kansas right there. And I've got a, I, man, I saw it. It was on display at the LA County Museum. And uh, I was able to look at it and, and <clears throat> there it is, blown up view. Why is it red? Well, they detected hemoglobin. You just saw the quote, right? This is them talking, not some crazy creationist. The presence of hemoglobin decomposition products represent th uh, residues of their organs. Wow, so it's the heart. What's the, it's the leftover of the heart that's inside this creature there. Uh, now here's some of our research that we've been doing. Um, here's, um, here's a Permian reptile that we found, and we, we have a friend of mine in L.A. actually is doing this work, and I'm, and I'm helping him from Dallas. And there's his microscope, and he keeps a really clean lab, doesn't he? But he's got slide after slide after slide, and he's, uh, he's using this super cool technique, uh, cross-polarized light microscopy. Just gets a thin section of a, of a fossil, and he looks in there, and he keeps finding little patches of organic material. Well, here's a, a, an Ariops. This is the name of the creature. It, just imagine like a giant salamander reptile type thing. It's extinct, but it's down in those Permian layers. These are mid to early flood layers, something like that. Maybe day 100, something like that, of these flood layers. And it, it's so, so this is a, uh, an aquatic creature, mostly. Uh, you can get these fossils in um, southern Oklahoma, for example, where we have these outcrops. Okay, so what we're looking at here is an image of fossil bone. And this is an osteon and some more here. And this is um, just regular light shining through the sample. Um, but boom, you can extinguish 
the, the light by using cross polars, like polarizing lenses. And now you're only, the only light that gets through at this point is the light that's been twisted by something in the sample. Uh, so it turns out that the, what's twisting the light has got to be collagen because that's what collagen does in fresh bone samples. But it's only in these patches here that, we, that are still lit up. Everything that's black and darkened is because the light has been extinguished by crossing those polarizers. Uh, we can talk more about that. And then we add a first-order red filter, and it shows even more dramatically what we're looking at. And then if you rotate the stage, the, green, the, the gold ones turn blue and the blue turn gold, and it's showing collagen in these regions that are lit up, so to speak, right here. Uh, the cracks indicate that this is definitely a, a fossil bone. It's old and cracked. And, uh, but the, this whole, all this where it's dark blue, no collagen left. The collagen has decayed because it's been underground since Noah's flood 4,500 years ago. So yeah, a lot of the collagen's been decayed. And it's been in southern Oklahoma where it's hot. So the more heat you give it, the, more, the faster it'll decay. Um, here's a sample of, um, this is I think a hadrosaur that I put in the scope. And you have calcite mineral precipitated in the bone there. And you've got uh, regions of the bone itself here that are going to change colors. This part here, it's gold. Um, I don't think there's much collagen there, but watch it change color right here from, from blue to gold. Um, right, right here. So that's some collagen that's in this dinosaur bone. Some, but it's only in little microscopic patches. It's pretty exciting. I also used a technique for my thesis that I defended at the University of Liverpool called um, um, second harmonic generation imaging. So we, we found... Uh, we found um, those little uh, red dots are from a triceratops bone, and we found little tiny remnants of collagen protein still in the bone. So that's my only claim to fame in the world of science, is I'm the first to use SHG imaging on fossils. Woohoo! I'm a real boy. <laughs> so so we, we also have uh, uh, results that we're about to publish. Uh, we've already submitted the paper two weeks ago um, on uh, Edmontosaurus sacrum. That's the hip bone. And we took some samples of it. We actually sequenced collagen. And here's our first result from the mass spectrometry. And on the top, we've got the, the uh, results from fragmented uh, little bits of collagen and from the, from the dinosaur. But then we did the same thing with turkey bone. And where we see the fragments are the same weights or the masses. Then we see a match between the fragmentation patterns between modern bone and ancient bone. And it looks like collagen and it's a match for collagen protein still in. Now, why are the peak heights so much smaller in the, um, in the dinosaur bone? Because there's a lot less collagen in there. But that's an, an, a super exciting result. Well, here's where you can go online to find the list of 120-some-odd that we have now. Um, uh, publications that describe these original biomaterials. Guys, it's, it looks fresh in, the, in North America, recently deposited in South America, Europe, Asia, I mean, we got collagen, we got chromosomes. This, this is incredible. Um, and yet, it's there. And we can learn more about this with our Guide to Dinosaurs. We have a four-DVD set. This is highly produced. We spent, I won't tell you how much of our donors' money we spent. You'll be embarrassed. Um, but we wanted to put, a, put together a DVD series. We're on location uh, at Dino Digs. We wanted to put together something that, that rivals the production quality of what you might see in a highly produced television show, not some mom and pop. No offense if you're a mom and pop, 
um, video producer, but we, we just wanted to do it right. So we're super proud of this, uncovering the truth about dinosaurs. Um, each of those discs is about $10 together, about $40, something like that. Now, Dinosaurs in the Bible, book I wrote. Um, if you buy it today for this conference, special deal, you will get, with your purchase of Dinosaurs in the Bible, a free cellophane wrapper. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can have a book that might be life-changing for you or f for one of your loved ones. Um, and of course, if you haven't signed up for Acts and Facts, which I hope most of you have, I encourage you to do that because every time you get an issue, you might find another piece of information, another, um, another fact that uh, scientists have discovered, whether it's us or our secular colleagues even, um, un unwittingly discovered some kind of science that confirms that Genesis is right. The flood really happened. We can trust our Bibles 100%. Thank you guys so much. Sorry, I've been working hard on festival stuff all day. I did not dress up for you tonight. I forgot my bow tie at home. Uh, thank you for wearing yours tonight. We gave him a hard time because we wanted to see it. So um, thank you all for joining us uh, this week with Dr. Thomas. We really enjoyed all his sessions with us. Um, please come back tomorrow night for our festival from 6 to 8, even if you don't have kids or grandkids. Uh, please come eat the hot dogs that are going to be prepared. There is a lot of them uh, because I am expecting a big turnout, and I pray that happens. But if it doesn't, um, everybody can have three or four hot dogs each. So please come out tomorrow night. Invite uh, friends, family, neighbors uh, to come out and join us. It's going to be a really fun night tomorrow night from 6 to 8, and the weather's supposed to be perfect. So uh, thank you all for coming. Again, give Dr. Thomas a round of applause. Um, go, go buy every, go wipe him out of all his books so we don't have to ship it back to Dallas, please. So y'all are dismissed. Thank you.